Welcome to Fringe Element here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. Nice sweater, Braden. Mine is Aaron Dugan. You can follow me on Twitter at the Aaron Dugan or the Graham if you prefer. Couldn't be that many of me. <clears throat> <laughs> Thank you for the um, commentary on the sweatshirt. Uh, it's a double XL. I've been wearing double XL stuff lately because, you know, pandemic bod and everything. Um, but also that apparently is something that like cool, young, hip, trendy people do. I am not. I'm doing it because I'm fat. Uh, everybody else does it because like your oversized sweater sweatshirt is because you are like hip and cool and young and single. Mine is because I just don't like clothing touching my body anymore. So there's that. It's a whole vibe. And let me just say this before we move on, since this is on video. My mom just told me on FaceTime that I was dressed like and acting like Justin Bieber. And for that reason, I couldn't take this outfit off and I'm just going to rock it. So I kind of look like a rapper. Maybe I'll have more of an attitude today. We're just going to figure it out. Okay, cool, just, cool just kind of swaggy. <laughs> yeah, I agree. All right, so fun show, big show today. Gus Malzahn has been fired, and you will hear from Brandon Marcello of 24-7 Sports. Used to be on the Auburn beat for a very long time. I he, Some answers that he gave me, they're not wrong necessarily. He's very well sourced, and he knows what he's talking about. I was just shocked to hear some of the answers about the direction Auburn is going, the goals that Auburn has and the expectations. So I want you to hear that interview coming up in a little bit. Aaron and I will react to what we've heard because again, it was, I was sort of dumbfounded when I heard some of his answers about what the expectation should be for Auburn and the new coach. We'll get to our thoughts on whether or not Gus should have been fired or not. We'll get to all that. Clark Lee is the new head football coach at Vanderbilt. So we've got that. We'll get to that as well. We'll hear from Chris Lee from bandysports.com, the rivals.com network, uh, officially licensed site covering the Vanderbilt Commodore. So you'll hear from him our returning champion on, on Clark Lee, the new head football coach in the SEC. And of course, it's a, it is National Signing Day. So we'll get to the playoffs in a second and the rankings and what AM needs to have happen to get in. But, and oh, by the way, Aaron, there's also an, uh, an SEC championship game. So we'll talk Florida and, Alabama, Florida and Alabama. But we're recording this on Wednesday morning. So we are a little late getting up for you guys. But National Signing Day is today. It's the early signing period. Now it's just the signing period. And I know you've had a very unique perspective on working inside of a program during National Signing Day. So I want to hear that from you. My perspective on the outside getting started 15 years ago at Rivals.com, which was like, I feel like I'm a recovering alcoholic to some degree. Like I used to chase that high, like all the way through the recruiting cycle. I would chase the, you know, the the individual players and chase the high of like where somebody's going to go and who's going to sign where, and, oh, who's going to be the big flip on National Signing Day? And, like, I love National Signing Day, and we partied on National Signing Day when it was over. We would – I sort of used to love the, the, the weeds, like, deep in the weeds. And as I've grown older, and I think this, the recruiting internet digital world has sort of evolved over the last decade, there's less sort of circus element to it on Signing Day and more sort of business. I think that's because parents and – coaches and players and everybody sort of realized that it's bad for the brand to be like the weird stupid story where like Alex Collins mom took his letter of intent and like literally drove away from his house so that he couldn't sign it and go to Arkansas like there's just weird stories my my message to people is the team rankings are critically important the team rankings matter in who can compete for championships Alabama's number one again pro, you know probably will finish number one Tennessee's pretty solid Florida's in the top 10 Vanderbilt's got the best class it's maybe ever had in school history that stuff matters over a three or four or five year window where Johnny five-star outside linebacker ends up today is just not going to 
probably change the course of your program's trajectory. So I'm all about the big picture team rankings, critically important. The minutia, you know, I've, I've, I'm on the wagon with that stuff. I, I don't track, you know, what deodorant brand, you know, the, the, the four-star defensive tackle is using as a, as a way to like fill my sports content life anymore. I'm done with it. No, National Signing Day is fun. Obviously, this is an early one, but inside the building, well, A, I can see why it would be hard to continue to follow the minutia like you have in your past because that is a lot of stuff to follow. And people are extremely dedicated to following every in and out of kids that you have never heard of, may never hear of. It's People are extremely dedicated to this. Um, inside the building, it's really, it's this weird combination of super high stress, a lot of excitement. People are quite literally sprinting and running around from trying to get things signed. Is this approved? Give this to your AD. Uh, All the recruiting guys, which they're always on the phone anyway, but they're really on the phone on national signing day. You hear them just hardcore selling. They've offered up their firstborn son to make sure that you're still coming there that day. I mean, it's exaggeration, but not really. So it's, there's a lot of buzz and it's, it's an exciting time for the program, but it can also be very high stressful, very high stress and um, can go exactly how you expect it to, or not how you expected it to at all. Tell us the difference between Derek Mason on national signing day and James Franklin on national signing day. Ability to maintain sanity. (laughs) So James Franklin can just be insane and and that's like his natural state? Well, I think very fast-paced, but one of them is filming a reality TV show while it's happening and one of them isn't. So you have two things going on with James Franklin, which is a full-blown production, everything's planned out, which it's always planned out, it's always planned out with Mason too, but not a full-blown, you know, full-length feature film. (laughs) Going on simultaneously. That that sounds about right. That sounds about right. We we at Athlon did, and I think you were working with us at the time, we did a sort of spent the day with James Franklin in the war room. And again, fascinating. Again, just it's so James Franklin. It's the he takes every little thing and makes it like you said, it makes it a big production. And I I think we'll get to this with Clark Lee because we'll have commentary Mm -hmm. about what it takes to win at Vanderbilt. And James Franklin certainly did that. And we'll talk about this with with Clark Lee coming up and Chris Lee, a lot of Lees on the show today, um, the new head coach at Vanderbilt. And that's the question about him is, can he create that same kind of energy? He may be a really good football coach. He seems like a really excellent defensive coordinator and he's an alumni. He he checks a lot of boxes, but what we don't know about him is, you know, what kind of culture can he build? The attention to detail, the sort of savviness, the marketability, the energetic pushing of your program, the way James Franklin would do as a recruiter, can Clark Lee do that? And I think Vanderbilt needs some of that right now to sort of regain. I mean, there's a lot of apathy right now in the fan base. And I think that Derek Mason, unfortunately, created that with a lot of bad teams. And I, I, I'm hopeful that Clark Lee has some of that. Some of the other candidates for Vanderbilt, I knew had that ability. And that's why I was pushing for Will Healy, for example, to be the head coach at Vanderbilt. All right, playoff rankings are out. Again, basically all the same. Florida drops one spot to number seven, A&M stays at five, the top four, basically the same. Um, I, I don't, you know, again, we're sort of right here in the same exact place we, we've been each time we've talked about this, Aaron. Yeah, it hasn't changed a lot at all. I think the only 
big surprise and potential loss of excitement going into this weekend, unfortunately, is that Florida wasn't able to pull it off against LSU this weekend. Insane end of that game. And that, to me, strips a little bit of excitement out of this whole playoff scenario. But, no question. you know. I said no question. I mean, it makes the SEC championship game. And, and we could talk about this if you want as part of this conversation. You know, Dan Mullen, who has put his foot in his mouth a lot this year, you know, was out there already talking about how, why, you know, the Big Ten doesn't have to play as many games. And, and he's got a valid point, but at the same time, your conference decided to play the game. So you can't blame the Big Ten. You can't blame the ACC. Everyone was just trying to do what they thought was the best thing for their teams and conferences. And you, your conference and your team decided to play LSU. The ACC didn't. The ACC canceled games for, for Clemson and Notre Dame. So you didn't have to play them. And the SEC decided to play them. And it cost you. So I'm not sure... I'm not sure if you can complain about the Big Ten right now for Dan Mullen. Yeah, he got a lot of flack for that. I also know that there's a lot of people that agreed because the SEC is just trying to finish. Well, I guess going into this weekend, there will only be one unplayed game, right? That'd be Ole Miss and – Yep. Which game – who are they going to play? A- A&M Ole Miss will not A&M get played, which, which technically could hurt A&M in theory, both ways. You yes. Know, if, they, if they lose it, they're knocked out. If they win it, it helps their resume, you know? I would venture to say that – it's not Dan Mullen at Florida that decided to play the game. It was the SEC that decided to play the yep. game. All comes back to it. Be that's an interesting concept though, because it all comes back to TV and what you need on the network, especially in a time when you're struggling to make your budget as an athletic department. You really depend on all of that money from the network, and there aren't in compared to others in comparison to other sports, there are not that many games, so all of them are important. However, it's an interesting conflict of interest to me because you really want as many of your teams in the college football playoff from a monetary standpoint as well. So it's kind of a weird, I don't know if there's really a push pull, but it makes me wonder like, oh, do we need, how bad do we need this game's TV money as opposed to having two potential teams in the college football playoffs? And I don't think they're allowed to go that far or let themselves go that far. I think it's just, if you can play the game, you play the game. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. Like it's all it's all hindsight. Like if you had beaten LSU, you would say, "Oh, it's good for Florida's resume." You know, if you if you throw a shoe and lose to LSU, you know, it turns out you probably shouldn't have played the game. I don't think what you can do is blame the Big Ten, and and unfortunately, that's what Dan Mullen's doing. And I and I know SEC fans don't want to hear this. You and I were not going to talk about this, but I got to get this off my chest. The the Twitter chirping at the Big Ten or at anybody else during a pandemic about what they decided to do, and and blaming them is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. To suggest that the Big Ten tried to cancel college football across the country at a billion-dollar price tag to themselves is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard of. Like this is—I'll compare this to the SEC scheduling really shitty teams in the third week in November, right? Like you know how everyone around the country complains that the SEC plays Charleston Southern and Sister Mary's School for the Blind on the third week of November before they oh, play there. So the point is, is that we play this bye weeks. And everyone around college football just bitches and moans about it and complains so much about how you play a bunch of nobodies before your rivalry game. And I always tell people in other conferences that that's don't complain about what the SEC does. Complain about what your conference does. If you want to play a bye week, if you're Michigan and you want to play Akron the week before you play Ohio State, you can do it. <laughs> it's not the SEC's fault that your league decide not to do that. Your league, Dan Mullen, decided to play the game it is your league's decision. It is not the Big Ten's fault that you are sitting at a two as a two-loss team right now. So anyway, end of rant. 
it's also tough because it's a better look to add games late than to cancel games late. I mean, I agree. I just, I, I'm not disagreeing with you, by the do you, way. Do you I don't think, think you, do you should think Ohio be, State's one of the best four teams. I do. I do too. So there you go. Uh, that's, that's all that matters. It, right. That's the only responsibility that the college football playoff committee has. And taking into account that, which is the question for you, Braden, before I keep going, I was thinking about this in when thinking about Kyle Pitts and some of the guys that have been out. If, is it also part of the college football playoff committee? That's a mouthful job to take into consideration what your players that have been out recently are capable of and what their potential contributing factor could be if they come back. So are they taking into account the fact that you would have Kyle Pitts in a playoff scenario or do you, are you going based on the current game? Because I haven't ever really talked about that and I haven't heard people talk about it either. Yeah, I, I think it's it, absolutely they should if they think it is important. And like, for example, Clemson's only loss of the year came against Notre Dame on the road without Trevor Lawrence. That is something you have to consider. I, I do think Kyle Pitts is the best player in America at his position, maybe any offensive weapon outside of the quarterback position. So the fact that they rested him against LSU and then lost, the, the problem is, is that Florida's a two-loss team, and they lost with Kyle Pitts, so I don't think it can go that deep. I think it can go deep enough if you've got the best player in America – who did not play in an overtime loss. So it's all about the nuance of it, right? So mm -hmm. Clemson's loss to Notre Dame came in overtime on the road without the best player in America. I think the committee has to consider that. If they lose again to Notre Dame this weekend, that changes that conversation. But if they come back and win, it clearly proves that Trevor Lawrence is worth something, you know? And Florida has already lost a game, so I think that they've sort of – I don't think a tight end – on a two-loss team is different than a quarterback on a one-loss team, basically. Does that make sense? It does. It does okay. make sense. Yeah, I think we just have to remember that they, this is a very diverse group of people with a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different strengths picking these teams. And here's the end-all, be-all, and everybody hates this, but we are not going to be able to judge people on an even amount of games this year. It's kind of a wash and we're really lucky that we are where we are <laughs> in terms of how many games we played and that you're going Preach. to get to watch you're going to get to watch championship games this weekend and you're probably going to get a playoff unless something insane happens so beggars can't be choosers yeah i, I agree we'll get to that championship game by the way florida alabama brandon marcello covering all things auburn and and from 24 7 sports in just a few minutes chris lee from vannysports.com as well Real quickly, a and I, I wanted to float a theory. I think A&M and Notre Dame are basically the same team. You know, they have veteran quarterbacks who have won like almost 30 games that are mobile, that, they, that the offenses use them and their legs in a lot of different ways. They've got killer offensive lines and defensive lines. They've got some really dynamic backfield weapons. They both are missing a big playmaker on the outside at wide receiver. Their secondaries are both sort of the question mark. They both have a head coach who's played in the national championship game. Jimbo won it in 13. Ryan Kelly lost it in 12. I, they're, <laughs> the only difference is one of them had to play on the road against Alabama in week two, and the other one had to play, you know, got beat Clemson at home without Trevor Lawrence. So uh, there's, to me, they're almost identical football teams. So if Notre Dame loses this weekend, I think you can make the case for A&M to be in. I, I don't think the committee will do that, but I do think there's a path for, for A&M to get in. Unfortunately, I think they need to root hard for two things. 
Northwestern to win against Ohio State and or Clemson to lose to Notre Dame. So they, they are huge Northwestern and Notre Dame fans. So just upper Midwest, huge fans of the upper Midwest right now if you're a Texas A&M fan. Otherwise, I do not see a path into the playoff. Got to root for the geeks this week. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> College station people rooting for the geeks. I love it. Um, so made I don't fun know, of you, them. You made fun of them in high school, but they're your friend now. <laughs> so I asked a guy in Vegas what the point spread would be if Notre Dame and A&M played today. And it's not the end all be all, but it's just a good benchmark to have. And he had Notre Dame minus three against A&M on a neutral field. So even the Vegas experts sort of view the, the, the perception of the two teams is that Notre Dame is slightly better. And so I, I can get on board with that. I think they are more consistent at quarterback with Ian Book. I think A&M, if you get good Kellen Mond, A&M is better. If you get questionable Kellen Mond, Notre Dame is better. And I do think that, but otherwise I think they're the exact same team. And I haven't heard a lot of people make that case. I still think you need Notre Dame to win if you're A&M to get in. I think you need Clemson to have two losses or you need Ohio State to lose. Otherwise, I don't think you can get in. I don't see another route. I really don't. And yeah. when you're talking about those two matched up against each other, although I do see your point about them having similarities on the same front and Ian Book running his offense has shown more consistency than Kellen Mond. Although Kellen Mond shows these lightning strikes of productivity. It's it when you're in those high stress situations and excitement's high that, you know, that consistency will fare well for them. It, it would be a hell of a game to watch, man. I, I would like to see it. That's that's for sure. Uh, otherwise, they, they still have to beat Tennessee this weekend. They've got to handle their business on the road against Tennessee to even be in the conversation. So uh, there is that. That right, would so, take them all the way out of the conversation. Yes, completely, completely eliminated. <laughs> um, all right, so Florida and Alabama in the SEC championship game. Uh, what is it, like a 16, 17-point spread? It's not really a close spread. I think I would take Florida in the points because actually of the loss to LSU. I think they'll come out motivated, play well, but they're not good enough, in my opinion. We've talked about this for weeks now, that Alabama's the better team. They can play any style of game that, that Florida wants to play. If it's low scoring, I'll take Bama. If it gets into the high 40s, maybe Florida's got a chance, but I, I don't know. Um, maybe Bama's defense is really good. They haven't really been challenged you know, since the going back to the Ole Miss game, they haven't, you know, they've been great statistically, but they haven't played a lot of great offenses. I, I still think it's Bama, but the controversy here is how Florida played against LSU. And obviously we could talk about the shoe throwing, but they lost the game because they made a bunch of mistakes on, on the end of drives and couldn't finish in the red zone. And, you know, when you make mistakes and then you throw a shoe and you get a penalty when you have a stop to win the game, and then they get a long field goal, like, in the fog, sometimes crazy shit happens and you lose a game you're not supposed to. That's what happened. And now they're not in the playoff conversation. So, you know how I feel about the shoe thing. I mean, it is indicative of how I, what I always talk about, which is the ability to control your emotions and be respectful. And a lot of that trickles down. And I'm not saying that's Dan Mullen, although he was, he was hard, you know, it was an emotional game. And I know you're so shocked. Um, <laughs> Dan Mullen was a little bit, you know, he's Dan Mullen. High in the press post game press conference, which I totally get. You went from potential of the most extreme elation to a lot of disappointment in a game that you didn't think you were going to lose. And I mean, the shoot throwing thing, though, it's like that's that's not being level headed at all, and that normally goes hand in hand with you know not being able to get back to the middle. I wear that phrase out, but I don't know what else to call it. You're right about 
just what Florida's performance against LSU says. Yes, they'll come back angry and wanting to win. No matter how much they were told that you can't underestimate LSU, all of that, maybe it started to become coach speak because we saw the way LSU has been playing throughout the season. You try, you know, in your conscious mind to not – downplay a team's ability to compete with you but I'm sure there's some subconscious part of your mind that really does know or think you're better and but when you watched LSU the thing that stood out most to me is that even their defense which has struggled a lot was putting a good amount of pressure on Kyle Trask uh, more so than he's seen lately so that to me is is something that's going to really have to get locked back up against Alabama or it's not going to be it's not going to be the competitive matchup that they want it to be. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Uh, Alabama's offensive line is going to crush them and Najee Harris is going to dominate the game and if they stack the box to try to stop him, then Mac Jones and Devontae Smith will steal your soul. So I, I think it's Alabama. I wish we could talk more about the game itself and actually break down the matchups. I, I, you know, Kyle Trask had over, they had over 600 yards of offense against LSU. It wasn't like the offense was bad. They just couldn't finish drives. And when you make mistakes heading into the goal line stand. Yeah, exactly. Goal line stand, turnover, throwing a shoe, whatever you make mistakes, you get beat in the, in the sec and in every other league. So let me ask you this. So I unsportsmanlike conduct to me, you know, you punch a guy in the face, clearly unsportsmanlike. It's very mean, very mean spirited thing to do. You kick a guy in the, in the, the twig and berries right in the, right in the crotchal region. You know, that's not exactly... Oh my God, you're so old. Don't say that again. It's not sportsmanlike. If you throw a shoe and then you go pick it up and bring it back to the guy, you're like, oh, my bad. And you go get the shoe and you come back. Isn't that actually pretty sportsmanshipy? Like if you actually go get the shoe and bring it back. Like you didn't attack anybody. There was no malicious intent. I do separate malicious acts from sort of like just emotional outbursts that aren't directed in any evil way towards any one person. Okay, no, I mean, I hear you, but not really, because here's here's the real deal. He ran and got it because all of a sudden his brain started working again, which men in general, sometimes it just turns off for a second. And then all of a sudden there's a short in the circuit. But he ran and got it because he probably immediately realized he was going to get a penalty and was like, oh, shit, I should go get that. Here's the other thing. If his own shoe comes off and he tosses it up like a graduation hat, Okay, you took someone else's shoe and chucked it. I mean, it's different. And no, it's, it's definitely, I, I cannot argue that it's a penalty. I, it's I, just I, like it's, control, it's, just control yourself. I know, you have to, you have, you are student, at, guys that play SEC football and are, you just need to be able to utilize it all the time. I, I understand. Don't throw it's someone a, else's shoe across the field. It's a penalty. It's wrong. I get it. I'm just kind of. Then you're not a shit human, but you're still going to get a penalty. Right. You like I just in the first place. <laughs> I, I I think it's a boneheaded move, and it hurt. I think it actually hurts worse that it wasn't like malicious. <laughs> like yeah, I, it's, well, it's easy for me to analyze. If you punch a guy in the face or kick a guy in the crotch, it's easy for me to be like, that is awful and stupid and terrible and mean and evil and all these things. But like chucking a shoe is just sort of like a momentary burst of emotional reaction, and I I think the referee should be given it. Ch- I think the player should be given a chance to go pick it up. And be nice about it. I don't know. Just cuddle up his refs and be like, do you think he meant it? It means it's funnier is what it means. And it also means that we don't hate him after, but you're still going to get a penalty. So you're right. You're right. You know, I mean, I don't hate him. I thought it was kind of funny. This was a penalty. I get it. I'm not saying it shouldn't have been a penalty. I'm just saying. I don't hate him. He learned his lesson the hard way. 
let's get to sounds like i'm taking bama you're taking bama unscathed baby yeah i know you're right about that um all right so coaching conversations here we'll get to chris lee of andysports.com to talk about the clarkley hiring introduce clarkley to everybody notre dame defensive coordinator who is now your head coach at vanderbilt he's an alumni of the schools from nashville born in nashville went to montgomery bell academy here in nashville and is sort of vandy guy through and through has never been a head coach before so there's plenty to discuss there the auburn decision to fire gus malzahn is fascinating to me um it costs over 21 million dollars to get rid of him and his coaching staff it does not feel like now there's a chance they go out and find some really big name that we're not thinking of bob stoops urban meyer you know chris peterson some guys that are on the sidelines but it, it also feels like the most Auburn thing of all time. And Aaron, do you think we should let people listen to Brandon Marcello's commentary about this first? Because I am genuinely blown away by what the, the plan could be at Auburn. And if Brandon is correct about what he thinks the plan is right now at Auburn, which is essentially to wait it out and give up until Saban retires, then I do not understand the move. It's a bizarre conversation. So I say we play it and then react to it. Okay. How about this? You will hear Brandon Marcello from 24-7 Sports, who used to be on the Auburn Beat, give you a, a long explanation of the expectations, who they're going to go after, who's making decisions, you, you know, the, the balance of power in the state of Alabama. So listen to the interview. Great conversation with Brandon Marcello. Really listen to his, his answer about expectations for the next coach. And then we will come back and discuss what the hell he's talking about. Yeah, we need to recap it before we move on to Chris Lee so that we can debrief right after it. All right, we'll be right back. Check this interview out with Brandon Marcello of 24-7 Sports. All right, first of all, Brandon, thanks for giving us a few minutes of your time. Let me, let me float a theory past you and see how, you, you, how it lands on you before we get started into looking into any specific teams. But I, I look around the coaching landscape right now, and I see Arizona, Illinois, Vanderbilt, South Carolina. I, I think there's a large pool of candidates that are quality candidates for those jobs. I'm not sure if I look around at Texas or Michigan or Auburn or Tennessee, for example, and see as many good candidates for that tier of job. How does that theory land on you? And, and what do you think about that? Well, you know, I think, you know, based off the names that we're hearing right now uh, for some of those bigger jobs like Auburn, you're not hearing the type of names you figure you would hear. And then the names that you do hear, like a, say a Mario Cristobal, seem to be out of the realm of possibility just off of from talking to people. And then like a guy like Hugh Freeze, who seems to be a hot name whenever some SEC job comes open this year, South Carolina Vanderbilt, that seems like a non-starter as well. And so what you're hearing here early in these coaching searches is just – I kind of like, as you said, like some of the more the similar names, familiar names that we've been seeing elsewhere. But I, I wonder if, not to say it's a smoke screen, but I wonder if there's more out there to look at because I see coaches out there that should be considered like, specific, you know, specifically for Auburn. I'm very familiar with Auburn. A guy that I think would fit perfectly there would be Indiana's Tom Allen, who – is a killer on the recruiting trail cut you know has strong connections to florida where he gets most of his stars that are now at indiana he can come to auburn and absolutely dominate down there in recruiting where they recruit georgia and florida primarily 
And he's got that family type atmosphere that Auburn's always striving for and always wants. Um, and a very faith-based guy. He kind of makes sense to me, but haven't heard his name come up. So having said all that, I think there are plenty of names out there that could that would entertain these jobs. It's just for some reason we're not hearing them come up right now. Again, and, and Tom Allen's an interesting candidate because like all of his assistants are clearly very good because they're all getting all these other jobs right. elsewhere. So I, I do wonder about like a Matt Campbell, you know, a guy that he seems like the top of the the food chain in that caliber of coach. You know, Hugh, Hugh Freeze. You mentioned faith based, so I'll just go right to Hugh Freeze because I think he's uh, he's he's not been shy, let's say, uh, about his desire to get back into the the coaching ranks at a higher level. The SEC has some love hate history and relationship with him. How, how would he go over well? I know he and Gus know each other. I know he, the Tennessee job is not open, so. How does Hugh Freeze fit into all of these things? I just don't think it would be a good fit for Auburn in a lot of ways. Um, one, because of the baggage. Two, because of his connections to Gus Malzahn. Because as you said, they're really good friends. So it would be weird uh, to begin with. Not to say that if Auburn offered the job to Hugh Freeze, he wouldn't take it. Because I think he probably would take it in a heartbeat if he was offered it. It's just kind of one of those situations where everybody's kind of I guess, orbiting around each other without actually making contact. But, you know, Hugh Freeze um, certainly would be a guy that would maybe fit that job. But, you know, if it was three years from now and he had kept his – keeps his nose clean and keeps winning at Liberty, maybe. But as it stands now, I, I just don't see that one happening there. Well, I'll get your thoughts on, on the, you know, your final kind of names that you'd like to throw out there for Auburn. But let's back up a little bit. And, and look at just sort of the job that, that Gus Malzahn has, had, did there. And I'd, I'd like to know, because I, 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 I point out the record against Saban all the time. Everybody points out the record against Saban all the time. The, the other SEC coaches now currently active in the SEC are one for 25 against Saban. And I remember a time in, in my job where Alabama or Auburn fans, either one, would, would call up my shows and say, I don't care if we're 0 you know, the old cliche. I don't care if we're 0-11, but if we beat Alabama, it's fine with me. And it turns out that's not the case, which I don't know if that's a sign of, like, Auburn fans finding God or, you know, still pissed off at Nick Saban. I don't know what it is, but, but backing up to his career, and if you tell the next coach at Auburn he's going to win 67% of his games, he's going to beat Nick Saban three times, he's going to win two divisions and play in a national championship game. I, I think that's really, really hard to beat. Is that a fair bar to set for Auburn for an eight-year period of time? Or is that an unfair bar to set for Auburn for an eight-year period of time? You know, it's, it's a lot like, you know, I kind of compare it to Auburn to Tennessee in a lot of ways that that's kind of where Tennessee should be expecting it, you know, but they're not getting there. Auburn expects it, but they're somehow getting to that point. But the common thread for Auburn during that time in doing that since 2010 has been Gus Malzahn, whether he's the offensive coordinator or then the head coach. But the problem is, is that ever since 2013, his first year, Gus Malzahn lost four games or more each season. But he sprinkled that in with some big wins against Georgia and obviously three against Alabama. But he could never repeat that magic of that first season. And things kind of got boring. And at Auburn, listen, um, you know, that old saying of mediocrity is hell, that it's, it's hell there. They, they – Fans feed off of it either being a great season 
or a terrible season at Auburn. They don't like the middle. They don't like being there in the middle and being good enough or whatever. They're not happy with good enough. It either has to be really terrible so they have something to talk about or it's got to be really great so that they can kind of rub it in the face of Alabama fans. But having said that, uh, you know, whoever this coach that comes in, this is a coach that I don't think needs to be worried about competing, you know, directly against Nick Saban. And I say that because this, this hire that they make needs to be a hire that is the guy that can help build up Auburn to a point to when Nick Saban retires here in the next few years, Auburn shifts the power in the state and is able to kind of take an opportunity when the window opens there. Does that happen? I don't know. But that's kind of what was communicated to me a couple of years ago when I was covering Auburn by some folks there that I know that I know that they're looking for someone to not necessarily compete directly with Nick Saban, but to come in and absolutely take advantage of that, that void when Saban leaves Alabama, when does that happen? We don't know, (laughs) but it, it certainly probably will happen the next five years. And if you're trying to hire a coach now that fits into that window, because you want to give your, coach four to five years if you hire one and I think that's the position Auburn needs to be looking at right now is hire someone that can build things up make you competitive so that when Nick Saban does leave you can come in and kind of take away that power and that's something that I know sounds silly because it's like well Alabama's Alabama but if you look through history in Alabama and Auburn it really ebbs and flows in the state depending on who the coach is and who's coming and who's going. And that's the opening for Auburn and they've been waiting for it. And it really is kind of a miracle in the first place that Auburn's been one, be able to beat Alabama three times under Gus Malzahn, but two, win the SEC West twice over Alabama during that time. It's crazy to think that they were able to do that. And, um, but it shows you that that's the expectation and, um, Gus Malzahn really built that expectation during the Saban era. He was the only one who was able to do that in the Saban era. You know, Tommy Tuberville left Auburn, got fired from Auburn because it was clear he was not going to be able to compete against Nick Saban. But Malzahn came in as an OC and then head coach and proved that he could at least, you know, have the better record among everybody, you know, winning three games out of eight, uh, which isn't a great winning percentage, but against Nick Saban, that's about as good as it gets. Yeah, that's a perfect – Tuberville is like a great example of that ebb and flow, right? And then, you know, you got Terry Bowden in the early 90s, that ebb and flow after Alabama sort of falls from grace. Like, it's, it's very much uh, yin and yang, one or the other. You can't have – same, same thing with Tennessee and Alabama, frankly. When Tennessee wins, yeah. that, that series is almost exclusively right. long, long stretches of one team dominating the other. Uh, all right, so give me the, the – I, I want to get your thoughts on Florida-Alabama uh, as, as well, but just – Give us your final sort of who are the two or three names that will be the finalists, and do you have a prediction on who will be the next Auburn head football coach? Man, it's tough to say as we sit here and record this, but, you know, there, there's a booster. There's one booster who's really pushing uh, Kevin Steele, the defensive coordinator and the interim head coach there right now. He's been really kind of campaigning behind the scenes to be the potential head coach should something happen. In fact, in 2018, there was some heat around Gus Smalzahn, and I thought at the time that if he was fired that, they would may very well make Kevin Steele the head coach. I think there's still a possibility there that that happens. Having said that, the names that you're hearing out there, Mario Cristobal, 
I, I'm not so sold on that happening, um, but his name is out there. It's floating around. Um, I'm not so sure he wants to coach in the SEC West right now, particularly coming from the Nick Saban tree. It's almost like an unwritten rule in the mafia <laughs> that if you're a Nick Saban assistant, you do not take a job in the SEC West unless you're Lane Kiffin and you just don't <laughs> care. Uh, but, um, you know, Mario Cristobal, um, you know, I really like Tom Allen, but I'm not hearing his name come up a lot, which is interesting. Billy Napier, the coach at Louisiana, whose name came up at South Carolina. Napier is a guy who's been kind of waiting for the right job to come open. And I think that maybe one like Auburn could very well be something that fits him. But I get the feeling that whoever's hired, it's going to be someone we're probably not even talking about right now. Yeah. And I think it's going to happen here uh, by the end of this weekend. They're going to have something something in place. So it could be something that comes out of left field. Can a girl's dream come true and Urban Meyer and Nick Saban be in the same state together? Like, oh, is that, God. That like, that's the dream come true, right? Like, yeah, but it, it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> even, even if Urban Meyer was wanting to get back into coaching, which he's not right now, he, he wouldn't take the Auburn job. But what, the second best thing in all that would be if Lane Kiffin yeah. left Ole Miss and came to Auburn and coached Auburn. That would make the rivalry so much more amazing. It's already crazy. I'm good with that. So much more amazing. And uh, but I don't see that happening just because he's been Ole Miss a year. I don't see him burning another SEC program, <laughs> especially to go inside the SEC again. Don't, don't put anything past the whole, <laughs> whole lane. Um, all right, well, I'll, Florida and Bama, you know, listen, I, I thought Florida was a top five, top six team for most yeah. of the season. Their offensive efficiency numbers is off, are off the charts. It, it doesn't mean that when you play a bad game, you don't finish drives. You have a few boneheaded mistakes. You can't get beat. And that's obviously what happened against LSU. And it, it, it definitely hurts. They're, you know, obviously, they're not making the playoff now. I thought that for a while that they were going to be able to score with Bama. But that Bama play, can choose to play any game it wants to. And that's what makes them special this year, in my opinion. That Whether it's Clemson, Ohio State, Notre Dame, or Florida this weekend – Whatever fight you want, whatever style of fight you want to have with Bama, they're cool with that, and they can do whatever. Yeah. They can roll with you. So I, I think it could be high scoring. I think Florida might score, but I, I just am not sure how the Gators win the game. How in your mind can, can Florida win the game this weekend against Alabama? I think the only way Florida wins it is if they somehow push Alabama into a shootout, up-tempo type of, type of game. Um, if Alabama wants to slow things down, kind of like they did this past week against Arkansas, where it looked more like the 2009 Alabama than the 2020 Alabama, uh, Florida's going to get killed. Uh, it'll be like, and when I say killed, it'll be like 28 to, to 14. It'll be like that was, it doesn't even feel that close because Alabama just physically dominated them. They need a hope for an up-tempo shootout. They need to strike early and strike quickly, get Alabama kind of on its heels where it feels like it's got to go down, down the field quickly. And if they do that and start trading punches, then it's just about who makes mistakes. And um, that's what you got to hope for if you're, if you're Florida. Do that, see if you can force Alabama into a couple of mistakes, whether they're, you know, uh, them stubbing their own toe or you getting turnovers yourself. But Man, as it stands now, you're exactly right. Bama is by far the best team in the country, and they can play any style and, and beat you. And But there's only one way Florida wins this game, and that's by just pushing the issue. Who's the most – if you're, you're Nick Saban right now, who's the team that concerns you the most from a matchup standpoint in, in, uh, in, in any game, any game that they could, they could play? That's a great question. 
I, I, I don't know if it's one team, but I just think there's two players he, he worries about, and that's Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence. I think it's the only guys he really worries about planning for. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily well, – Clemson's defensive line worries me. Ohio State's defensive line worries me. The secondary here. No, it's those two playmakers that, that could just take over a game and win it in the final seconds and final minutes. Uh, but I, I think the team that could give them the most concern uh, would be uh, Ohio State. Um, I, I, th- I think Ohio State is, uh, you know, they were my pick in the preseason to win the national championship. I'm not certain of that now. I think Alabama's going to win it. But I think the way they're built, they, could, they can contend against Alabama in the way they play. Plus, the teams that have beaten Alabama – in the playoff that we've seen, they, they've just had an amazing, <laughs> amazing quarterbacks. And, uh, you know, maybe Trevor Lawrence will be that guy again or something. But I, I think Justin Fields is that, is that quarterback this year that could potentially get it done. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Ain't, ain't nobody beating Alabama this year. <laughs> yeah, I just don't see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my opinion. Brandon, thank you so much, man. We do appreciate it. Enjoy this week uh, uh, on the beat. It's always a fun time of year to be a college football reporter. That's for sure. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That was Brandon Marcello of 24-7 Sports. We do appreciate his time here on Fringe Element, of course. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, at Marcello, and on the Auburn Beat for a very, very long time. I've known him for a while, and generally he's pretty well connected. I, I, again, his conversation essentially was they fired Gus Malzahn for over $21 million so that they could change their plan to become a program that is just going to be ready to pounce when Nick Saban retires, which I hear as giving up until Alabama no longer has the best coach in the world, which is not necessarily a bad strategy. It's not necessarily stupid. There is some logic to it. But if that's the plan, why not keep the guy who won 66% of the time, was able to beat Nick Saban three times, largely eight and four, nine and four, every single season and when Saban does retire he will have 10 11 12 years of branding that he's built up at Auburn I I don't understand if that's the plan you're going to go try to hire someone like Gus Malzahn like I know that it's been it's boring and stale but like I'm just so confused (laughs) this makes absolutely no sense to me you just tried to kind of create some potential reason somewhere in there I feel like it's digging. I can't get myself there mentally. I tried. I listened to this whole interview twice and I don't understand it because a, you're not going to survive until Nick Saban retires. If you don't beat Alabama at all. And guess who's one of the only people who can beat Alabama over the course of most of the last decade, Gus Malzahn. So if you have to go on an Alabama winless drought until Nick Saban retires, which he's going to be, 91 coaching football, then you're not going to mentally make it. Also, this is in direct opposition to all of the Auburn fans earlier this season telling you that it's not about Alabama. We want to beat the Georgias. We want to beat the LSU Tennessee and, LSUs. Yeah. We want to we want to beat the Texas A&M's. We want to beat all these teams. And they're saying they were saying on Twitter in the Twitter sewer where you love to live because you bask and bathe in it. This is in direct opposition to those once reasonable for a split second Auburn fans earlier this year that you want to sit on a hiatus until Alabama isn't 
as good, but you got rid of the only coach that can beat Nick Saban, which all of you know that you'll just peel over and die if you don't beat Alabama for the next five to seven years. Right. Uh, There is some sound logic. Some of it makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. So there is some logic in some of the different avenues of thought here, but they cannot coexist. That's my problem. Like, if you want to sit here and say, Alabama is the most powerful program in college football and has the greatest coach of all time. Our goal should not be directly to compete with Alabama and win six or seven national championships, but that we should prepare our program to be very good when Nick Saban leaves. That there is some logic in that. I don't like. What do you it. mean, prepare your program I, to be really good when Nick Saban leaves? Don't you want your program to be really good now? I would. I would argue that if that was the plan and if that's the logic, that Gus Malzahn was doing exactly that. He was going yes. eight and four, nine and four, occasionally popping up and winning some big games, recruiting at a high level, building a stable program and establishing a brand, which to me is like what Brandon said. Brandon was like, these are all the things you want to do so that you're ready when Nick Saban retires. Here's the, and you made a great point. Here's the problem. If Nick Saban retires in three years, then sure, you've made a good move. Maybe you hire somebody right now that's building his program for three years and ready to pounce when Nick Saban retires. What happens if it's four or five and you've gone 0 for 4 against Alabama and you're doing exactly what Gus Malzahn is, which is going 8 and 4 every year. And if you're 8 and 4, four straight years and you fire another coach, then you're restarting when Alabama is restarting and you've not gained anything. The risk here to, to me is simply not worth the reward. And I think if you had 12, let's say, let's say Saban retires in four years and that would put Gus Malzahn at 12 years at Auburn. And he does exactly what he's done the first eight years, which is eight or nine wins every year, recruited a top 15 level and sort of build a brand and an expectation. Right. And then when Saban retires, wouldn't Gus Malzahn be the most qualified person to sort of pounce on the SEC West when Saban is gone? Like I I just, that logic makes no sense. What I really think it is, is they don't like Gus Malzahn. They're tired of it. They get stale. Auburn fans are irrational. They have no ability to use logic and reason, and they just are willing to spend $21 million to hire Kevin Steele, who's their defensive coordinator, who went 1-31 in as a head coach in the Big 12. Do you know how hard it is to go 1-31? in I feel like I could maybe coach a team to one one victory in the Big 12. Maybe. I don't know. but I think you could. I think you could. Maybe. I mean, we're just don't say anything and hope they make the right decision because they might win (laughs) one game. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Coach Here Dugan. on the sidelines, like I did in college, pom-poms, win a game. We got 31 chances. Just win one. Co- Coach Dugan, what's the play call on third and two? Um, we're doing the fight song. Please join me. Coach, Coach, the clock is running out. Are we, do, are we calling timeout? Just, <laughs> Silence. You know, I have a theory about the Auburn fan base and their relationship with Gus Malzahn and what they really need. And I think – I don't think he's crazy enough for them. I think they want, I think it's a too calm and steady of a relationship. It's too level-headed. It's good for a long-term marriage if you want to make it to 85 years. It's not hot and heavy enough for them. It's not crazy and toxic enough for them. They need a crazy person. Like, honestly, if when Vanderbilt had James Franklin and Auburn had Gus Malzahn, if they had just switched that's what Auburn fans want. They want the craziness. They want they, yeah, they want do. someone that's and he's just as crazy as them. It, so they would just get in these hit huge blowout fights, but then they also know how to talk to each other because they're both crazy and just off the charts. And the chemistry and the chemistry's real good, is what you're saying. Yeah, and he can yeah, they <laughs> they make up for it at the end after they fight. It's like the Rihanna, there's a uh 
Love the way you lie. There's a Rihanna and Eminem music video when they keep burning each other's houses down, but then they get back together. That's what Auburn wants. They want like a toxic, heated, like <laughs> crazy person that communi yeah, can yeah. communicate with them because the calm, cool, and collected thing is just not the same. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's bizarre. I mean, again, if you could go pull a name out of thin air that no one's talking about, maybe this is a smart move and I could get on board with it. Um, I, I don't see how you can hire someone who's going to be better against Nick Saban and better in that division and win two divisions. So I just think you're I think there is some logic to saying, look, we cannot beat Alabama routinely. We need to try to be the second best program. And I know that sounds weird, but I think there is some logic to that. The problem is with that logic is if that is the plan, then you should have just kept the guy you had. And that, that's my issue is I'm okay with you making the move if you think you can go get Bob Stoops. If you think you can hire the next superstar, make the move. But do it to beat Alabama. Do it to win championships. Don't do it to be in second place because you've already got a guy who's good at being at second place. It cost you $21 million wave my hands at the screen or in front of my computer, be like, just a reminder, it's cost you over $20 million. Yep. If you'd have told me, Hey, someone's going to spend over $20 million to hire Kevin Steele. I would have, I would have started laughing at you. I just would have said, that's ridiculous. Um, again, he was the head coach at Baylor from 99 to 02. And he went one in 31 in the big 12. Now, granted that was before RG three and Art Bryles changed that program around. But again, it's pretty hard to go one and 31 in any conference at any point at any time at any school anywhere in American history. So I, I just don't think he's the guy. Um, Hugh Freeze is not coming to the SEC this year. I think he wants the Tennessee job. And I think that job may be open next season, but it will not be open this year. And other than that, I, you know, Brandon mentioned Tom Allen at Indiana. I think he'd be a good, good coach. I think the message boards would burn to the ground if they hired the Indiana football coach to come coach at, at, at Auburn. Matt Campbell at Iowa State is a great candidate. I think would be great. Billy Napier's a really good candidate at Louisiana. It feels like they've had a plan in place for this because you should if you're going to fire someone for 20 plus million dollars. I don't understand the move. I don't understand the logic. I don't understand what Brandon's talking about. I, I'm not saying Brandon's wrong. I'm just saying I don't understand Auburn fans thinking the way he explained it. And so I, I don't know. I don't know. Let, you want to move on to Vanderbilt now? Down. How, the fans seem fairly happy about Clark Lee. Um, not everybody in the fan base wanted him, but most did. Certainly the big powerful people in the SEC and around Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt did. The biggest booster for Vanderbilt wanted him. The big power broker agent, Jimmy Sexton, in, in the SEC probably wanted to put Clark Lee at Vanderbilt. He's from here. You know, Chris will explain a lot of this stuff, but he is a very sound and solid coach. There's no question about that. The question is, is, is that enough to win at Vanderbilt? And, and I don't know if it is, especially if you're not going to get any facilities upgrade, you know, from the administration. So from what I heard from what Candace has said, she went in with a certain intention and over the course of the interview process that changed. I do not doubt for a second that Candace turned over every rock. I also was a little bit tentative about Vanderbilt continuing to hire search firm after search firm, because to me, some of that, I understand the intention, but it takes the hand, the power out of the people that you've placed to make big decisions for university, your university and your school. So I don't always understand the search firm. I feel like Candace is very well versed and could make this decision without it, but I don't obviously get a say in that. Her stipulations that she wanted an offensive-minded coach and someone who had head coaching experience, obviously. Nope, nope. <laughs> nope and nope. 
She did say that during the interview process, it became really apparent that he was the person for the job. Obviously, you're going to stand by your decision. And I hope that that decision really was, I hope that the university weighed very heavily on Candace. And I hope this is all of this is, you know, you got to have each other's back after you make a decision, university, AD, all that. And I hope that's the case. I hope that they really weighed very heavily on Candace to make this decision. She's 100% capable of it. And I hope that during the course of the interview process, it really changed from, we think these things are important to realizing that Clark Lee could do these things and maybe he didn't check the same boxes, but that he's the best fit for the university. He said the right things by saying, and I already had this in my head, that the the offensive coordinator obviously is your most important hire. And most people don't say this, but he said his second most important hire was a strength coach. And I totally agree with that. I've seen different strength and conditioning staff come through and the difference is noticeable, especially on a day-to-day practice. You can just tell, you can just tell by watching the guys work out what that looks like. Most people don't say that. So I do like that. He said that strength and conditioning was the second most important, not a common answer, maybe not the most, you know, publicly accepted answer, but a really good answer. Um, we know that we know that he can recruit, you know, kids that are smart. I, I don't know if Vanderbilt historically has put as much emphasis on, I know we can get athletes in as long as they're qualified to be able to maintain the curriculum at Vanderbilt. Yeah, I getting, do getting think- into Vanderbilt is not the problem for athletes. They'll get them in. It's the workload once you're in. Yes. So he can get guy, he, he knows what it's like to have a really heavy workload. I don't know what recruiting in the Southeast is going to look like for him. Um, I know he's from here. I know he has a history in Nashville and I know that he loves this program in the city. And as an alumni will definitely invest. I'd be interested to see how all of the recruiting, um, what that translates like for him. Um, And my only thing is I just really hope that I hope that Vanderbilt didn't do this just because of budget. I know that any head coaching position in the SEC is expensive and they pay well, but there were, you know, there are some people, there's some other names out there that maybe would have been cost them a little bit more money, but. No, I don't think it was budgetary. I think, cause they've, they've paid James Franklin and Derek Mason very, very well. The, the, my yeah, issue is the, the, the pearl clutching is about the facilities. And, and we'll let Chris Lee talk a little bit more about that because he's got some insight as to what that actually could Yeah, be. I kind of ranted for a while. No, 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 you're, Chris... you're good. You're good because I think the school investing in Clark Lee is, is going to be as important as Clark, is Clark Lee good. <laughs> like there's the school yeah. has to invest in him. Um, again, the, the questions about him are that he's never been a head coach. He, he, he's never had to build the culture by him, you know, as the CEO. He's never recruited in this area. And we don't know what he is like on the rubber chicken circuit going out there and flying on boosters planes to go, you know, raise money and, you know, do all that stuff. We just don't know. He could be great at it. And if he's got all the attention to detail and the planning that James Franklin had, then he'll be fine. But if, if not, I already know Will Healy can do all that stuff. I you know, I already know Lance Leipold at Buffalo can, can build all this stuff and, and can build a program and build culture and win championships because he's done it. And so I, I do think, you know, the last time you hired a defensive coordinator from an academic school in the top 10, it didn't go that well. So you, you just tried that. You're going back to the well again. It doesn't mean Clark Lee's not going to be great. We'll see. Let's hear from Chris Lee from VandySports.com. Uh, that is the, the officially licensed website of the Rivals.com network covering the Vanderbilt Commodores and, of course, host of the Vandy Sports podcast, VandySports.com podcast right here on the 440 Sports Network. So check that out as well if you want more Vanderbilt coverage. Here's our conversation with Chris Lee.
Chris, always good to see your face, my man, and uh, appreciate your time today on the show. So first and foremost, Vanderbilt has a new head football coach. And before we get into Clark Lee's strengths and weaknesses, which I think have been fairly obvious and, and covered fairly well, just what was the fans' reaction? G- give me your sense of the Vanderbilt fan base reaction writ large to selecting Clark Lee as the new head football coach. I think most were pleased with him. I mean, he's a Broyles Award finalist at Notre Dame. I think that his success on the defensive side in a time where it's hard to get stops speaks to people. He's also one of Vanderbilt's own. He was a walk-on. He played with Jay Cutler and Javon Hay and some of those guys. He walked on. And I think that means a lot to people, too, that he would go through the sacrifices that he did. He's well-liked in the community. His family's well-liked in the community. I think that for the most part, it was a solid hire. Some people will have an issue with it, and it may not work out for some of those reasons. Now, you have a group of people who wanted a Will Healy or a Jamie Chadwell or a Jeff Munkin or any number of people. I mean, in most hires, that's the case, right? I mean, unless you're hiring Nick Saban or someone like that, there's always going to be you know, some sort of diversity of opinion. But in this case, I think most people seem to be fairly happy with the hire. You mentioned a lot of the positives there. We, can, we, we know a lot of them. They are the known commodities about Clark Lee. Um, and he could be a very, very good football coach. There, there's a lot more unknowns with him than some of the other candidates. Recruiting, choosing an offensive coordinator, what philosophy does he want to run and build his program around, and, and then just sort of building culture. So, sort of, do you have any insight into maybe those? But those are the three big unknowns. Recruiting in the SEC, what offensive philosophy and who you're going to hire and sort of building culture. Do you have any insight as to how you can answer those questions uh, with a guy like Clark Lee who has no experience at any of those things? Braden, you asked a lot of good questions, and I don't have answers right now. I think that play calling is important, an offensive coordinator. Obviously, he's a defensive-minded coach who he brings. I think he needs to bring somebody with experience. We will see. Recruiting, I don't think he's going to come in and be a James Franklin. I think one of the criticisms of Clark Lee is people find him boring. I think boring is sometimes an underrated commodity. There's been a lot of boring hires that worked. Bill Snyder worked at Kansas State. That's about as boring as you get. I think the question is, are you attentive to detail? Do you work hard? I think you can recruit if you do those things. And if you have recruiters on your staff, which brings me to Javon Hay, I would expect him to keep Javon. Braden, they've got the number 33 rated recruiting class in the country last I checked. That is phenomenal at Vandy, given they just went 0-9, the season's done, Um, all the issues they had this year, they were bad the year before. I don't know how they did it, but they did it. I would have to think, given that he played with Javon, and Javon has been very essential in keeping this class together, I would think he'd have a place on the staff. So um, that's what I think at this point, but there's still a lot of unknowns. And let me ask you a question about, I, I did get a lot of Andy fans, because they are a unique job, talking about how they wanted a guy who was going to be here for the long run, a Vandy guy who views Vandy as a quote-unquote destination job. And and I would argue that there are maybe like eight or ten of those jobs in all of America. You know, so I don't think it's a knock on Vandy to call it a quote-unquote stepping stone job. And and even if you do go hire somebody that wins a bunch of games and gets interviewed somewhere else, and I don't – like to me, this would apply to Clark Lee as well. If he's really, really good and wins a bunch of games – and Alabama comes calling, like, he's not going to stay at Vanderbilt. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, do you think that part of this equation is overvalued, that he's so, so much of a Vandy guy that he's never going to leave, even if he's great and gets offers to go coach at, I don't know, Penn State, say? I'm with you. I, I think it's overvalued. I mean, you never know, first of all, right? 
one. And two, how many coaches stay anywhere more than five or six years? I mean, I don't know what the percentage is. You see it more like it may be Mac level schools where they don't have the money to pay buyouts and things like that, it seems to me. But I would love to know the number of coaches right now in the Power Five that have been at their school five years or more. I would bet you it's under 50%. I think you hire the best coach, unless you have a reason to think he would turn around and leave you immediately. And, oh, by the way, they had one of those. How did that work out for them? Best they ever had. I think that's overrated. To me, I'd go find the best coach. Uh, but I don't know. I may be in the minority on that. And, and I, I want to say the average lifespan of a coach in the SEC during the Saban era is like roughly four years. So, yeah. like, again, don't quote me on that number exactly, but I want to say I've, I've done the math in the past, and I want to say it's about four years. Uh, and, of course, that number is going to go down now that all the other coaches are, are gone in this league. Ken Seals, how much did he factor into the decision, and how much does he factor into Clark Lee's decision offensively? I don't think – he factored into the decision. Vanderbilt never makes decisions based on things like that. They, you generally don't make decisions on timetables or perception. They do what they want to do. Ken Seals is staying. I know it for a fact. Um, he's a guy I think you can build an offense around and should build an offensive around. I think that we will wait to see what that looks like. You know, I think unless they were running the triple option or something like that, he'll probably fit with whatever. But he's, he's planning to be back next semester – I think he plans to be in it for the long haul. He's a team leader. He wants to build a program. He's excited about being at Vanderbilt. In all the mess that the next coach is going to get, <laughs> you know, that's the one thing. Everybody wants like a franchise quarterback, and we can debate whether he's that or not. But for Vanderbilt, as a freshman, I haven't seen anybody come in and be better right away. And that's the one thing that they have uh, that a lot of other schools would kill to have right now. So through the interviewing process, there's probably just as many questions for coaches of Vanderbilt as there are from Vanderbilt to the coaches. Do you have any sense as to what the, and you know where this is going, do you have any sense as to what sort of conversations, promises, thought processes, future decisions are, are because of the new power structure at Vanderbilt in the athletic department, the, the, the decisions that may be different to help Clark Lee succeed in terms of investment? Do you have any concept of, the direction of, of where the, all that's headed? Supposedly, there will be a campaign, I think, in the spring or the summer. Um, I think that one of the things that they have said that I've heard privately is the next coach will be involved. In other words, we want to see which coach we get and what he wants and what he thinks is important. I think that'll play into things. The locker project is coming. Notice I called it the locker project and not the locker room. The reason I call it that was I think they are supposed to be portable pots. So you can bring them into the situation right now, but then take them somewhere else if you build a new building. I know that's the first thing on the list that's supposed to be getting started maybe even within a week or two and be done for next season. So that'll be the first step. The bigger picture things allegedly are going to be done in the spring or released or fundraised for or whatever. Now, stop me if you heard this before, right? Because I have. <laughs> but uh, you asked the question, that is what I've been told. All right. Well, how optimistic are you that in three years when Clark Lee is, you know, whatever his record is, and we're looking over at the end zone and there's this grand opening of this big, beautiful new football facility that, that helps Clark Lee succeed? Well, okay. One, one thing we know is there will be no uh, chocolate waterfalls or all the things that Daniel Deermeyer said on the, 
<laughs> and lazy rivers. So we, we could rule that out. That's one we know, right? I don't know. Lazy river, a lazy river might sell pretty well on the recruiting trail. Like I would, I would co- like a lazy river. My kids would love a lazy <laughs> river, but I'm not making the decision. I, I, I don't know. I mean, look, privately, the drumbeat for a while has been they're going to do this. The chancellor is very serious. I have been told, and I know this for a fact, they have taken off the restrictions for giving. Used to be if somebody wanted to give for athletics, they had to go through the school and that got walled off. I'm told on good authority that's no longer an issue anymore. And that's a big thing, right? Because now that opens up a lot of avenues to giving. Now, what are the plans? What can they raise? I don't know. Again, for a while, it's been consistent that the chancellor has been serious about it. I've also heard, well, you know, maybe they'll do something with the coaching search, or maybe they would have announced something at the start of football season. Now it's sounding more like spring. So it does concern me that the ball has been pushed back again. Uh, go by history, and we've seen the can kick down the road. Look, I'm not a fortune teller. I, I, I don't know that a fortune teller could make a prediction right now or an accurate one. That's what I know. I, I know what I hear, but I also know what I've seen. And I think if you get to April or May and stuff hasn't been announced, there need to be some really serious and pointed questions asked. From your perspective, what was the process like not being credentialed, then being credentialed. Uh, we do live in a world where everyone is extremely close to the vest and, and very sensitive about everything. You have been covering this team as, as well as anybody has in, in a, you know, on this beat for almost two decades. Did, were you given a reason why you weren't allowed a credential? And if you're comfortable, why do you think that you ended up getting your credential eventually reinstated, for lack of a better term? Well, look, I was credentialed to two of the five home games this year. The reason I was given is I had space limitations and there would be a rotation. Um, Now, I know this, there were at least three people that got into every game, and I got into two. Uh, So that doesn't sound like a rotation to me. Um, I was not going to get in for the Tennessee game. I'd been very critical of them lately. I think the criticisms were fair. They may not have been very popular. But uh, once it got out there that I was being denied again, frankly, a lot of people – in the media helped me out. Uh, a lot of my fellow guys at Rivals, I know I had a donor that called me and said, I have threatened to pull donations. And they said, I've told him I will pull donations. If he doesn't get in the press box, you're going to do this. I think they got a lot of phone calls. I think they got a lot of emails. And I think eventually uh, the pressure got to them. And I think that's why I got in. Well, always a pleasure. VandySports.com, of course, is the website. The podcast right here on the 440 Sports Network. The best place to find anything covering the Vanderbilt Commodores. Not just football, but basketball and baseball as well. Hopefully we'll have full seasons (laughs) of of both of those sports. Uh, Thank you so much, man. We do appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Chris. Thank you. Special thanks to Chris Lee from VandySports.com for coming on the show with us again. I think he's a returning champion. I think he's our second returning champion, Aaron. I'm not, I think, I think he's been on the show before. So we do appreciate him. And, uh, you know, one of the big things there is going to be facilities commitment. We've talked about it a lot. Vanderbilt has the money to spend, you know, hand over fist on facilities if they want to. They have chosen not to. It sounds like there is some progress in those areas. Potentially, if donors can earmark money for athletics for the first time, according to Chris, that is a positive step. I have talked to multiple large donors for the Vanderbilt Commodores who want to be able to spend money on the football program. I've talked to former players that want to spend money on the football program. 
I, I know guys like Brent Snedeker want to see investment in the, the Vanderbilt football program. So, uh, you know, who knows about Clark Lee? We'll see. We'll all learn together. But if Vanderbilt's not going to commit financially to making him successful, it's probably, you know, you probably have your answer on how much winning he can do. So fingers crossed. Yeah, there you go. Uh, all right, so that just about does it today on the show. Enjoy National Signing Day. We'll recap it all next week. We've got Florida and Alabama. I've got Bama winning outright, Florida plus the points. You've got – I didn't pick on the spread. I just picked yep. Bama outright. Yep. I, I think that's everything. I think we got it. it happy uh, oversized white sweatshirt day on the show. Um, if you check out Aaron's – Do a dance move. <laughs> Do one. Ew! <laughs> and, that'll go, go and that'll go in the video. Check out the videos, by the way. Aaron does great work on those every single week. We actually get to watch us do this. which It's a very lucrative business. Everybody should sign up to do Fringe Element videos. I say we put this bad boy to bed. We, we, we hit it for the weekend. Enjoy the SEC championship game. If you're an A&M fan, you're rooting for Northwestern, you're rooting for Notre Dame. Uh, and enjoy signing day. Enjoy recruiting, all that good stuff. We still got a great coaching search with Auburn. So we got a lot of stuff to get to next week. So stay tuned. And I, I would normally say rate, review, and subscribe right here. But what I would say now is just tell one person about the show. Just please. Like, you know, we do this because we believe in it and we believe in you, the audience. So just please tell one person. That's all. Just tell one person about the show. I'll tell one new person today. There you go. See? My new strategy yes. of not screaming rate, review, and subscribe at people is already working. It's probably going to be the checkout person at Kroger. I'm not going to lie, but it's a person. Well, if they look like an SEC fan, go for it. His name's Marcus, and he does look like one. Where so. can people follow you, Aaron? Um, the Aaron Dugan on Twitter and Aaron underscore Dugan on Instagram. <clears throat> you can and me, you? You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall, at 440 Sports on Twitter and Facebook as well, at 440 Media on Instagram as well. There you go. Thank you for listening. We do appreciate it. Enjoy the weekend. Special thanks to Chris Lee and Brandon Marcello as well for joining us on the show. This has been Fringe Element on the 440 Sports Network. Bye.